Welcome to the ACAS podcast. I'm Sarah Guthrie, part of the communications team here at ACAS, and today I'm joined by Brendan Barber, who's been chair of ACAS for the last six years and stepped down at the end of July. I'm also joined by Shimon Ali Rahman, who heads up our media team, joining me today to grill Brendan on his time at ACAS and everything he's learnt. So, Brendan, you've been chair of ACAS for six years, and before that, you'll be most known for your role as general secretary of the TUC. I was wondering, what's been your proudest achievement during your years as ACAS chair? I guessed you were going to ask me that, and I should have. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of personal things, dispute resolution is something that you get a buzz if you've been able to help play a positive role in helping to resolve particular big disputes where the dynamics of the way you've handled something might might have made a real difference and you can kind of sense that. So some of the particular disputes that I've kind of played a part in, the junior doctors, the British Airways, one relatively recently uh, with the pilots, the, the universities disputer a while back, uh, some of those I got personally involved in. If they do move forward in a positive way, then uh, those are things that give particular satisfaction. So the junior dockers dispute, probably one of the most high profile disputes since I've been here at ACAS anyway. It was top news story. I still still record coverage at 1,280 pieces of media coverage back in 2016. Oh, wow. in my head. <laughs> um, you led the conciliation team for this dispute. It was considered unsolvable, and yet you managed to get a deal. How did you do it? I knew some of the leading figures in the BMA, the doctors' union that was in dispute. As the dispute unfolded, I kind of made an approach initially to the BMA to try and get a feel for what the key issues were from their perspective. I did know some people on the government side also and talked to them about it and felt my way towards, you know, reaching a point where potentially both sides might be willing to talk and could see value in perhaps ACAS holding the ring. There'd been a lot of distrust on both sides in some of the earlier exchanges, in the earlier stages of the dispute. And sometimes that's what the third party can do, create a different kind of arena to try and work through what the issues are and what the differences are. Sometimes in disputes, the sides aren't very good at listening to each other. They're not very good at listening to actually understand what the real positions are of the people on the other side of the table. And again, sometimes a third party can help explain things in ways that the side then actually listens and understands better, perhaps, what the other side's perspective is and so on. Conciliation is obviously one of ACAS's top services that we provide, but what would you say, what kind of personality attributes do you think is almost like essential in that kind of role, um, and what would your tips be? Well, you've got to try and leave your ego outside the room. Sometimes you're dealing with very strong personalities uh, with strongly held views about the issues. And sometimes you're dealing with delicate egos that feel their own status is at stake. You have to be able to engage in a way that helps build trust in you, but certainly leave your ego outside the room. So if one side asserts very strongly A, B or C, there are times when you have to say, well, that's rubbish, but certainly you need to earn the right to, to say that by being able to absorb people's feelings as well as, as well as what they're actually saying about the issue. 
I was curious that if we're talking about junior doctors, yeah, was there any kind of time within when you were dealing with it because it went on for quite a while when you think, oh my god, this is never going to be solved? I never thought that. There were certainly times in that and other disputes where you find it very difficult and you reach some real unpassed points and what I've learned is you you do have to be prepared to stick at it and take the knockbacks and keep working at things and keeping the relationships on both sides in a state of good repair so that even if immediately you're not able to resume a process as and when there may be a thought about a different idea or a different approach you've still got the credibility and goodwill with both sides to be able to bring them back together perhaps at a later point. So leaving your ego at the door, listening, absorbing the emotions, these aren't simple skills. And I'm wondering, were you always a natural at this or is it something that grew? It's something that's definitely grown. I did a lot of dispute resolution work at the TUC. And as you kind of gather experience, you get a little bit more confidence, obviously. And you realise it's not the end of the world if an idea doesn't fly. That's fine. Again, that's where you leave your ego outside. You don't worry about being knocked back if, if something's not going to work. But other kind of things I learned over both the TUC and ACAS experience is writing skills, very, very important in conciliation and dispute resolution. Because even if you think you've got an understanding on a, an issue, a solution to a problem, unless you can write it down so that it's clear, it's on the record, and you can confirm with both sides, this is what we're agreeing, then it's so easy for things to just dissipate once people leave the room. And, oh, well, that wasn't exactly what I meant. That wasn't exactly what I said. So the ability to craft the words, find the language, is an important kind of skill. And I learned through my time at the TUC, particularly actually during my time as the kind of TUC press officer, I was given the opportunity to sit in on a lot of big dispute meetings and develop the craft of writing the press release. So what are we saying about this meeting at the end of it? If there's a, you know, at that time, there were a lot of disputes with a lot of journalistic media interests and so on. And people outside wanting the statement, what, what's happened and so on. And through trial and error, I kind of developed some skills at actually trying to craft the conclusions, uh, find the language. That's a very important skill in conciliation, not just about the dynamics in the meeting. You've got to be able to nail it down and find the language to nail it down. And are those skills that you just mentioned relevant to everyday working life? Not many of us find ourselves in headline-hitting disputes on a daily basis. Yes, absolutely. Um I mean, conflict is a part of working life, isn't it? Uh, whether it's about individuals falling out, their working relationships, you know, deteriorating, and, and all these kind of issues about listening skills to really understand what somebody's saying is the cause of their grievance or concern, uh, through to trying to deal with issues empathetically, trying to build trust that you're not going to go out and rat on them. Building the trust is in part about demonstrating that you can observe confidentiality and manage the communication in a thoughtful, intelligent, respectful way that's not going to drop somebody in it. You have to recognise as well that lead negotiators 
uh, on whichever side are sometimes playing an extraordinarily difficult role trying to keep their side together. I've seen many disputes where there are big fractures on the management side or the trade union side with hawks and doves on either side. You know, on the union side, sometimes a sense of people who may not really want to get a solution. Maybe they want to pursue the battle further and others perhaps keen to get a solution on the on the management side. Doves who want to get a settlement and reach a compromise, rebuild the relationship. And hawks who are saying, well, we want to beat the union up. You know, we need to teach them a lesson. Uh, so you have to understand the dynamics and the difficult challenges facing lead negotiators on either side of, of the dispute. Mm, so these conflict skills of listening, empathy, building trust are all really important for all of us because conflict shows up in work. And you can actually see that also playing out within each party's workplace and grouping in a dispute. So panning out a bit, coronavirus is, is having a dramatic impact on the country and we're likely to head into a recession. Lots of people are talking about how it's likely to change the way that we work. What do you think are going to be the key issues going forward that we should pay attention to? For me, there are lots of issues that arise, but just to mention two or three, there's been a lot of commentary about in the crisis, who have we seen as important that perhaps ought to be valued in different ways? You know, a lot of commentary about that amongst the lowest paid workers in the British economy are the people who work in the care sector. Is that the right value for all of those people working in that sector? So issues around equality and inequality have come to the fore that have been highlighted by the Black Lives Matter movement, that have been highlighted by the Me Too movement. So there's been a, a lot of lip service paid over a long period to the issues around equality and inequality. But as we're thinking about a new economy in the wake of the crisis, if we get a vaccine and so on, we don't want to just go back to the old normal. We want to create something new and something different and something more positive. I think about the issue of well-being and mental health. Again, perhaps a lot more attention just in the last year or two has been paid to that. We're going to see real increases in mental health problems. The number of young people who are potentially going to really struggle to get a decent start in the labour market. We know from our history uh, they can be particularly vulnerable in the context of the deep recession. So there are issues in that space, too, that I think are going to need a lot of really serious thought and attention. And, and the other kind of issue I'd headline is if there are going to be big changes, if a lot of firms are going to be thinking we need to restructure, we need to change our business model, we need to rejig the whole way our people work, how are they going to manage that change? Are they going to really work hard to engage with the workforce to bring their, their people with them on that journey of change? Are they going to be genuinely open and transparent? Are they going to actually really listen to the priorities and concerns of their workforce? Or are they just going to kind of pay lip service to that and bang through profound changes that might have a huge impact on the lives and living standards of their workforce without any genuine consultation. So equality, inequality, health, mental health in particular and well-being 
is there going to be a real process of engagement? These are going to be big, big challenges. We've seen a lot of interest in the media about the challenges for businesses in this new climate. What do you think the challenges are for trade unions? What's going to happen in the future? I mean, there's talk of recession, there's talk about mass redundancies, etc. How do you think unions can effectively navigate in the new future? Well, it's going to be a tough period for many unions. They may see membership hit if unemployment rises to the kind of levels that commentators are speculating about. But the broader challenge, I guess, strategically for unions is in this context, uh, whether they can really secure the opportunities to be able to exert the influence that they arguably should have. And that's both at the level of individual company and organisations and employers. And in terms of our national discourse, can they be brought into the process in a constructive way so that their, their views are generally taken into account? I mean, my impression was that in designing some of the emergency responses to the crisis, the TUC, uh, along with the CBI and others, they were listened to. That was very important. Well, we're going to need more specific interventions in the labour market over the next period, I suspect. How those measures are actually designed, both the TUC and the CBI, really ought to be a big part of the discussion because they're the people who have to make it work in practice. If you go go way back to the 80s and so on, there were periods where the quality of some of the training interventions was just seen to be inadequate and they they lost credibility as opportunities for young people. Making sure that you design things in a way that have proper quality guarantees and you safeguard against the possible negative consequences of interventions. Those are things where the CBI and the TUC will have really important insights that I would hope that the government will want to bring uh, bring into the conversation. Mm, and these are really big issues that we're talking about. If I were to give you a magic wand to get all workplaces to do one thing, what do you think would make the biggest difference? I think it would be about listening and engaging. I mean, there are some places who do this very well and they get the benefits. Lots and lots don't fall into that category, given that we're facing a period of probably big, 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 big change in so many places. Key to handling that well and positively will be the extent to which employers find the right mechanism for engaging and genuinely listen to their workforce. I mean, we just all know this in our everyday life, don't we? When things are handled well in your own workplace, in your own personal life, people feel better about things and engage more positively with things and, uh, and so on. But when things are really badly handled, they retreat, they withdraw, they, they have lots of negative uh, feelings. Listening, I, I can't overstate the importance. And sometimes you see people that, have exceptionally good listening skills and sometimes you just see people who they're just wanting to move on to the next kind of thing coming out of their own mouth. I know which I think is rather more effective. So moving on without listening to you. Um... <laughs> I've got one final question. So you are Sir Brendan Barber and I have this vision of 
all the knights meeting up every single year around round table. <laughs> <laughs> so my question is, what is it like being a knight? It's not the most important thing that I think about when I wake up in the morning. <laughs> when you become a knight, you get a letter from an organisation that is an organisation for knights, for which quite a reasonable fee was being asked if one wanted really? to join this organisation. The only benefit I could see was that you could marry your daughter in the crypt of some notable chapel somewhere. Um, <laughs> which I never thought was something, a facility I'd particularly ever want to take up. Um, so it's it's a kind of form of recognition, isn't it? Um, in the in the trade union world, uh, I found that there were always different kind of feelings about the, the whole kind of idea about honours. Uh, some people always rather negative about the idea of anybody from a union background. I was always more positive than that. I thought, you know, if in British society we're giving recognition to people who contributed in all these other different ways, why should the trade union movement say they don't want to be a part of that? Trade union representatives give a real huge uh, commitment, overwhelmingly on a voluntary basis, to trying to make their workplaces better, their communities better, and should be able to be recognised for that as people who make different kinds of contribution. So that was always my my view, but I totally respect some people take a different view. Well, on that very respectful note, demonstrating your ability there to see two sides of an argument, Brendan. Thank you so much for sharing your insight on how you handled those high-profile disputes on the challenges for workplaces rebuilding after COVID and how important listening is in all of that. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the ACAS podcast. If you'd like to get the latest episodes, then do feel free to like and subscribe. Review on podcast apps. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, most major Android apps. And you can find more information on conciliation on our website. We'll put some useful links in the session notes for this episode too. Thanks for listening.